0: I listened to last week's sermon, and I love when things happen, which seem like a coincidence, because I know in ministry, especially when it comes to Sunday services, it's not. It's of God. Last week, we had George Russ be our guest preacher, and I was listening to his sermon, and he shared a story about this woman called Charlotte. And as he's sharing it, I'm like, this sounds really familiar, as if I've just heard this the week before. And we did. Paul Nelson actually preached that previous week. And she wrote the hymn, Just As I Am. And it was a beautiful hymn, a reminder to come to the Lord as you are. It's, it's used in evangelism, it's used as rededications as Christians to give our lives to, to Christ. And I just love that George Russ had the same analogy, and we literally sang that hymn the week before. And then once again, he, he touched on that story. So I just love when God works that way. I was listening. I was like, man, this is this is worth mentioning this week when I was before the sermon. So over the past couple of months. The elders, the deacons, we've been calling various church organizations, churches, parachurch ministries or resources. We've been trying and we've been praying for revitalization in New Village Church. And there was one phone call in particular that was memorable. As we explained to the person on the phone the, the status of our church, where we've been at, where we are now, what things look like, he responded back with this statement. He said, if your church is not evangelizing or discipling, just close your doors. And at first I said, ouch, okay, that, that hurts, that stings. Like, why would, you, why would you say something so mean? But then I thought, is that true? And, and it is true. Those two actions, discipleship and evangelism, those are signs of a healthy, obedient, spirit-led, God-glorifying church. And, and I questioned why. And when we have discipleship, discipleship is your own personal growth. It's your own, uh, growing in your own faith, your own spiritual maturity. It requires reading God's Word, meditating on it, memorizing it, discussing it, being encouraged by it, letting it fuel you for daily living. Discipleship is an inward spiritual growth, while evangelism is now outward. So he said, discipleship's important, but not only that, evangelism. Evangelism is taking what you know, what you've learned, and telling others about it. It's knowing who Jesus is and sharing him with everybody. It's a command for all of us to evangelize, not just the church leaders, not just the missionaries, not just the pastors, but for everybody. A healthy church builds up their members doctrinally, spiritually, biblically. They equip them to go and to tell others about Jesus and what they've learned of who Jesus is. In order to be an evangelizer, you have to be a disciple. In order to tell others about who Jesus is, you have to know Jesus. And that previous statement, right, if your church is not evangelizing or discipling, close your doors. That statement haunted me. It, it kept me up at night. It kept my mind going. And I was thinking, is our church, I made it personal, is New Village Church, are we as the leaders effectively equipping, training, discipling our members in a biblical, accurate, God-glorifying way? Are we making evangelizers? And as I've been praying and I've been asking God, because I'm going to be preaching a lot over the next couple of months, I wanted to go through a series. And God, for some reason, kept putting the Gospel of John on my heart. And John's Gospel, as I did a little bit of studying about it, it's a bit different than the other Gospels. He doesn't mention anything about Jesus' birth, His baptism, His ascension, His healing of demon-possessed people, or even any of the parables that Jesus taught. Also, the second half of John's Gospel, I believe starting at uh, chapter 10, or I think it's 9, 10, or 11, one of those, all the way to the end is a a magnifying glass. Zoom in on the last week of Jesus' three-year ministry. So you have the first half of John, which covers everything up to the last week of Christ's life. And I love that John tells us why he writes his gospel. I don't have to guess. I don't have to assume. I don't have to rely on biblical scholars to tell me. In John chapter 20, verse 30, this is what John says. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's main focus in his gospel is to make sure the readers know who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. That's the central theme throughout John's gospel. And John builds a strong foundation for this theological truth from the first couple of verses in his gospel. And I think it's important for us as a church, as New Village Church, to just look at John's gospel and answer and be reminded of the question, Who is Jesus? Because if we are to evangelize and tell others about Jesus, they're going to say, Who's Jesus? And you can't say, I don't know. That's a good question. They say, Well, why are you telling me about Jesus? You don't know him. So, as a church, right, as we are hopefully being discipled, as we're learning who Jesus is, my prayer is that we can be evangelizers and tell the world who Jesus is. Growing up, I loved building Legos. I was obsessed with them. But for like a month in middle school, my obsession changed to playing cards. I don't know why. My parents might remember this, but I was obsessed with just playing cards, learning magic tricks, or, you know, magic tricks. I was obsessed with like trying to throw them and figure out like what the best way of throwing them is and doing a terrible job. But like, you know, I did all that. And then I got to building card towers. And I'm going to be very honest. This morning, I tried to build a tower, and this is. This is what had happened. I even cheated. I used tape. And I got to the very last one, like the very, very little bit. I'll take you, I got to the very last top of it, and then as soon as I put it down, it collapsed. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I had this perfect analogy set up, and I knew how to do this. I thought it was like riding a bike would just come back to me. And then I started blaming, well, it's a table. It's these cards. They're not the right cards, right? But the whole point of this, this was an analogy that was supposed to be a card tower. The whole point of that is as you build a car tower or anything in life, the foundation has to be strong. If the foundation's weak, it's going to crumble. And as we start our series in John's Gospel, we see that John gives us a strong foundation as to who Jesus is. So today, if you have your notes, we're going to look at five foundational truths that we learn about Jesus Christ. You're not going to—if you've been to church or you claim to be a Christian or you grew up coming to church— You're not gonna be like, oh my gosh, I never knew this. This is so profound. What? These are serve as a reminder. It's important for us to remind us who Jesus is. So if you have your notes, I'll give you all the blanks right now. That way you don't have to worry about missing them. Number one, Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is eternal God. Number two, life is given by Jesus. Number three, Jesus is the light. Number four, Jesus came into creation and was rejected. Jesus came into creation and was was rejected. And then number five, we have been adopted. So eternal God, life, light, uh, came, rejected, adopted. Those are your blanks. Number one, John starts off in verses one and two. In the beginning was the word, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John's Gospel starts with the account of the ultimate question, Who is Jesus? Where did he come from? And he goes back, and the the, the language he's using here points the reader back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus' story, according to John, it didn't start with Mary giving birth to him in a manger, but rather it goes all the way back to creation itself. And from these two verses, even verse 1, we see three important truths about who Jesus is. The first is that he's preexistent. That's a fancy way of meaning he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Before creation began, Jesus existed. In the beginning, he was. He already was there. The second thing we see, right, in the beginning was the Word. The second, the Word was with God. Jesus was with God the Father. We see the relationship between Jesus and God. There are different persons of the Trinity here. We have two out of three, but one being. A better translation as I'm studying Greek and as I hear people who are more you know, knowledgeable and, and wiser and smarter than I am they said that the proper word or imagery here is face-to-face relationship. Jesus is in a face-to-face relationship with God, and that's the most intimate relationship one can have with another. I thought back to my wedding day, and there's a time where I remember just I'm like, where, where, what do I look at? And then it's like, you look at your bride, David. Like you know, My friend's like, you look at Stephanie— so I'm looking at Stephanie, and when we're looking into – I don't know if you've ever looked into somebody's eyes or maybe just at your wedding day. Remember back to that. You have this sense of like vulnerability, like oh, they're staring into my soul. Like I, like I have no secrets. They, they're looking at me. I can't, I can't hide. They, this is who I truly am. Right? It's a very intimate thing to just stare into somebody's eyes as they look back. This relationship between Jesus and God in the beginning we see is what? Face-to-face, intimate, close, loving. The last thing we see, right, the Word was God. He is God. John's central truth in his gospel hinges on this truth. Jesus Christ is God. Now, there are people that have changed this translation to say he was a God, but in the Greek it's it's, it's a definite, Jesus was the God, the God. He is God. And if you count up the word was, right, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, John uses this verb four times. And it's a a, a verb that describes a continual action without regard to beginning or end. So what that would read is, in the beginning was and always will be the word. And the word was and always will be with God. And the word was and always will be God. As Christians, this is the first important foundational truth we have to hold about Jesus Christ. He is God. And if you notice the language John uses for Jesus, he uses the word word for Jesus instead of Jesus' name. It's not until about verse 17 that John attributes the word as being Jesus Christ. And John uses this Greek word lagos. And he's attributing that Jesus is the embodiment of God's Word. And as I was doing studying on just what Lagos meant to the Greek culture, to the Greeks, there's all, there's all these different rabbit trails we can go down. I don't want to confuse anybody or, or give information overload. But just what's important to talk about is he's attributing Jesus as being the embodiment of God's Word. As we see Jesus, we look at what he says, we look at what Jesus teaches He is God. He is God's word and flesh. It brings us back to the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1. How did God create the universe? Ex nihilo, out of nothing, by speaking it into existence. He created it out of nothing but just his speech. We think about the law that God gave. He gave his words, and they were written down. And Jesus came to what? Fulfill the law of God. In verse 3, we read this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the word, Jesus Christ, was not created. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they like to attack this foundational truth. They say Jesus is a God. He's a created God. He's not the God, though. He's a creation. No, he's not. He made all things. All things were created through him, according to John's Gospel. Again, in verse 3, we see who Jesus is. He's eternal. He always was, always will be God. In John's other book, he wrote Revelation chapter 1, we read this. This is God speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? The beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And as I called a couple of pastors this week to just ask them, their thoughts on John 1.1 and, and, and through this text and some, some truths, one in particular said, David, make sure the church knows the Almighty God is Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So when we think and we reflect and we see and we read the words of Jesus, that is the Almighty God who stepped foot into the creation that he created, who came to us To save us. Point number two. We'll keep going. Life is given by Jesus. In verse four. In him, in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ, the word, God, is self-existent. He doesn't rely on anybody or anything to give him life. He is life. Everything is given life because God is pure life. Only he is able to create and give life. And not only is Jesus life, but he also came to offer eternal life to all who believe. Now I'm going to read a couple verses here. Don't check out. I want you to listen for the word life or eternal life. These are all in John's gospel and these are just some, not all of them. John 20, we just read this. But these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 3, 16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but what have eternal life. John 4, the woman at the well, Steve Missour preached on this a few weeks ago. He said, but Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give in him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 40, after Jesus claims to be the bread of life, which we've looked at a few months ago as well. Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have what? Eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the theme or another theme throughout John's gospel, that Jesus Christ is the life, but not only that, he came to give us eternal life for all those who believe. Not only that, but in his other writings, John can't get away from this truth. In 1 John 5, he says that Jesus is the true God, he's the eternal life. In Revelation 1 Again, John, he says, When I saw him, Jesus, I fell to my feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the authority to give life. He is the life. He holds the keys of death and Hades And we see that from John's gospel that Jesus came to offer us eternal life by giving up his life as a ransom. So Jesus is eternal God. He is is life and he is life-giving. The third truth we see is that Jesus is the light. Not only does John continually use the word life in his gospel, but he uses the word light. He uses life 47 times. He uses light 30 times. Verse 4. In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He says light a lot of times there. Here we see Jesus being what? The light which shines out into the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower or overcome it. And I thought about lighting a match in a dark room. I don't know if you've ever done this or if the power gone, has gone out in your house. Right? When you light a match, and I'll light a candle because this thing's gonna go out really quick. But when you light a match in a really dark room, it's just crazy to see how much light this little flame gives out. That light overpowers it. It, it, over, it can't be overcome. It, it, it expunges darkness. It gets rid of darkness. Light overpowers and pierces through the dark. And in the same way we see that from John's Gospel, Jesus is the true light who has given light, he says, to everybody. Verse 9, the true light. Right, not a false light, not anybody, he's claiming to be the true light, which gives light to all, to everyone. Both Jew, Gentile, Greek, Romans can receive the true light through what? Faith, believing in Jesus. You could do a whole sermon series on light and darkness in the Bible. It's it's really interesting to read. Just a few attributes of light that I want to mention is that it overpowers darkness. One commentator says that it puts chaos into flight. That chaos runs away from the light. If you remember back in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The first thing God says, the first word spoken into existence, verse 3, let there be light. And it says, and God saw that the light was good. So what? What? Light makes darkness flee. It overpowers the dark. Light also reveals, it exposes, it shows things as they truly are. In John 3, a little bit later in his gospel, we'll read this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what, is, what the, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So light, Jesus, exposes our sinfulness. He exposes our sinful condition. Light also guides. Here's the, the last attribute of light. It guides us. It illuminates. It shows us the safe way to go. It leads us. In John 8, as we went through the I Am statements, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever, what, follows me will not walk in darkness, will not stumble in this life in the dark, but will what? Walk and have the light of life. So Jesus came to give life, to be our life, but to be our light, to defeat the powers of darkness, to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior and to lead us into eternal life with him. The fourth foundational truth. Jesus came into creation and was rejected. Actually, before I go into that one, I don't want to skip over it. We're going to touch on it, but he mentions John. He says, another John who came to bear witness about the light. Uh, That's talking about John the Baptist, which we're actually going to look at John the Baptist on uh, Palm Sunday in a few weeks. So I'm going to hold off going into that verse a little bit. We'll get there. But moving on, we'll go to verse 10. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As we continue to talk about these foundational truths as Christians, we have to believe that Jesus both came down from heaven to earth, he came into his creation, and that at the same time, he was rejected. He was rejected so much that he was killed, he was crucified by his own people. It's not enough to just believe that Jesus is eternal God, that he is light, that he is light. We have to believe in the incarnation of the Word, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, we'll skip ahead to that one verse, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm not going to go into that because next week we'll talk about that in depth. But Jesus was literally born in Bethlehem in a manger to Mary. He literally walked around in Israel. He was baptized in the Jordan River. He traveled on the Sea of Galilee. The Gospels are not fictional, made-up, fairy-tale, nice stories by just a a, a fictional writer. They're historical narratives of Jesus that were written by first-century eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, ate with Jesus, sang with Jesus, saw him crucified, saw him rise from the dead, and saw him ascend up to heaven. As John records it here, Jesus, God, came down from heaven into the world he created and then was rejected. He was rejected by his own people. They actually crucified him. Jesus came to the Jews. He came to Israel, and they nailed him to a tree. As Christians, we must believe in the crucifixion of Jesus. At the cross, we see what? The wrath of God being satisfied as Jesus bears our sin. We see the love of God at the same time that he would willingly die for us and make a way for us to be reconciled, to be made right before him. And this is a truth that cannot be compromised. Again, next week we're going to talk more about this point and the incarnation of Christ. But for now I want to just move on to the last point. The last one is this. We have been adopted. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him. So John changes gears here. He goes to those rejected him. To now what? Some believed in him. Some received him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. And there's a reason why I picked some of the songs that, uh, this morning. The first song talked about the deity of, of Christ. That he is God. The second song talked about him being the word at the beginning, that Jesus always was and always is, and he's eternal, pre-existent. The last song we sang talked about us being children of God, which relates to this verse right here. The word receive is you can think of to take hold of, to to grasp something, to to have it and, and to not let it go, to obtain it. Right? To those who received and believed in Jesus, John says. He gave them the right. Jesus gave us the right to be called children of God. If we're in Christ, we're God's children. It's our right. It's our privilege. We're entitled to it. All of us here today, if you claim to be a Christ follower, I want you to hear this. If you had a really bad week and you feel as if no one loves you and you're all alone, you're a child of God. God loves you so much. He adopted you into his family. All of us today are children if we have our faith in Christ. Praise God for that. But this is important. Being a child of God is not our heart's natural condition. We're not naturally God's children. The Bible's clear that by nature, we're called children of wrath, children of disobedience. We're enemies of God who follow our own selfish desire. That's who we are apart from Christ before we know him as our Lord and Savior. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this in Colossians. He, being God, has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people, who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear, beloved Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave us of our sins. So how or why do we have the right to call ourselves children of God, his sons or his daughters? It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we selfishly are like, you know what, I'll be good enough and God will have to give me that title. Nowhere in those verses I just read does it mention us, me, I. It mentions Christ. It mentions his love, what he did for us. Going back to verse 13 in John chapter 1. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're born again not by blood, and what he's saying here is not by who you're related to, which we also looked at when we looked at Jesus talking about the I Am statements. It's not your racial Heritage or ethnic heritage or who you're a descendant of. The Jews were very proud of that. We're children of Abraham, which makes us children of God automatically. Doesn't matter if we disobey His word. We're God's children. Jesus says, "No, you're not. It's not about who you're related to." John also says, "It's not by the will of flesh." You can't have this personal desire or wanting and say, I'm going to do as much good things as possible and then I'm going to earn God's love. I'm going to earn this title of being his child. God will have no choice but to give it to me because of how good I am. No. Not of the will of man. No made man, uh, man-made systems or laws can give us this title. How do we get it? The last three words. But of God. It's his grace, his love, his mercy that we're called his children i think of the cross and as i was preaching on this theme of adoption i wanted the children to know because this is a truth i think we all struggle with not just teenagers we all want to be accepted right we we all long to belong we we want to fit in we don't want to stand out we don't want to be by ourselves and be lonely and as I encourage the kids, God's word is clear that we all, if we're in Christ, we belong to him. He adopted us, which means what? I think of the, just, the, just adoption in general in, in the United States. What it is is you're, you're taking a child that biologically is not yours, but you welcome them into your family, and you love them as your own child. You don't say to them, well, because you're not technically my, you know, my biological child, you know, I, I don't love you as much as my other son or daughter. That would be very messed up, right? Stephanie's sister um, has adopted a few children. Just to see the love of, of adoption just in, in family systems in the United States, how much more we have that love of adoption from God our Father who's perfect, who when he sees us, right, he doesn't see us as sinful beings whose hearts are wicked if we're in Christ. He looks at us and says, my children, my son and my daughter, I love you. I see Christ's blood which is he? He, he puts his robe of righteousness around you. So, as we go through John's gospel, we have to hold to some of these foundational truths. Jesus is eternally God. That He is life and gives life. He is light. He came to the earth, the incarnation of God of Christ, and was rejected and was crucified. And the last was because of His death and resurrection. We've been adopted into His family. And my hope and prayer is as we go through some of these simple theological truths, right, none of these are mind-blowing. We're like, well, I never knew that. I I was at church for 25 years, and I I never read this before. But it's a reminder that in order to evangelize, right, in order to go out and to tell people who Jesus is, we have to know who Jesus is for our own sake, right, as we tell others about him. And my prayer is that going through John's gospel, we can be reminded of the love we have and that love of Christ will fuel us and overflow out that we'll want to share Jesus with our co-workers, with the students in college or high school, with our friends, with our family. right? Not out of obligation, but out of love and obedience to Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much. Just for this opportunity to gather as your sons, as your daughters, as a body of believers, to worship you, to read your word, to delight in your word. I pray that even as we leave here this morning, we can remember these foundational truths, be encouraged by the love that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you've adopted us into your family. It's nothing that we've done that we've deserved, but it's all what Christ has done on our behalf. So we praise him as our Lord. We praise him as our Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for showing us your love by dying on the cross for our sins. I pray that as we leave here, we can be transformed and go out and preach your word to everyone. In your name we pray, amen.